Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now, let's get straight to it. Today's episode is huge. Anyone that knows me will know my love for horror, and especially British horror. So films like Dog Soldiers and The Descent are in my top 10 of all time. So today, I'm absolutely buzzing and so thrilled to announce that I'll be joined by the director, Neil Marshall. Yes, you heard it right, and I can't believe it's happened. When I started Mark and Me almost four years ago, he was top of my list. It's been a long time coming, but it's worth the wait, and I can't wait to share that with you very, very soon. But before we do that, let's touch base and talk about the last episode. I've been doing a number of artist specials. I actually call them the voice behind the artist, and we had our third artist on, Sam Gilby. What a great guy, what a great interview, and hearing the feedback and seeing so many responses on Twitter and Facebook of all these new people now discovering his work makes my day. So thank you to Sam for coming on the episode, and I'm pleased to announce we'll have another artist on on the next episode. And I'm loving them that much, I might do a whole series two and another round of five more guests in the very near future. Right then, today, it's Neil Marshall, one of the best directors out there. It's an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast, so let's get to it. Here's me and Neil Marshall. Neil, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Good to be here, man. What I want to do for the listeners out there today is take it right back to the start. So when you were growing up as a kid, I want to know what those early films were that you were watching that kind of helped shape the movie love that you have now. I suppose it's a, it's a combination of what I was watching on TV, which is like, I remember one of my earliest memories is my dad showing me uh, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. I think there was some season back on back, back in the 70s, it would have been a season on BBC Two, you know, showing the, the classic horror movies. And yeah. I remember wa- watching those and just being absolutely like hooked by them. Just like, I loved it. Other kind of principal TV things were watching Doctor Who every Saturday. Amazing. And, and, and hiding behind the furniture with all the monsters. And this was, this was like the Tom Baker, um, John Pertwee kind of era of Doctor Who. And then, you know, at some point, I guess when I was six, seven, I started going to the cinema or being taken to the cinema and watching films such as um, uh, Spy You Loved Me, Bridge Too Far, um, Smoking the Bandits, nice. uh, and, of course, and of course Star Wars, and, you know, and, and around that period. And that having a massive impact on me. And I think I fell in love with going to the cinema. I fell in love with movies through that. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life until I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was 11. Wow. And, and, and then, then it was like, okay, I, I need to direct movies. I don't know what that job is. I don't know how to do it, but that's what I want to do. So when you're at the age of 11, you're getting to see Indiana Jones on the big screen, which I'm extremely jealous of. I was the guy that had to rent it from Blockbuster Video. And... Uh, <laughs> have the same effect but um I, i'm thinking there are, there are benefits to being older yeah the, the um I, i'm trying to picture you now at 11 thinking what do you do at that age to kind of process the fact that you want to be able to be like steven spielberg or someone that make these films are you kind of telling your parents that at secondary school you want to do as much as you can in kind of the so as the creative arts do you want to do, at that point get into film studies I suppose so. I mean, I came. I come from like an artistic family. Like my my both my granddad and my dad were like painters and artists, design writers, and like incredible artists in their own right. 
Um, so I suppose it was like, and I did paint for a while, and I, I suppose I could know if I could, if I could be asked. But um, I, I, you know, I, and, and so I, I picked up with that, but then I just took it in a different direction. And, and it happened because um, my best friend um, at, at that time, uh, well, still my best friend, really, um, Mike Johnson, who again he went, he went on to be in the business as well. He, he wrote Sherlock Holmes and Pompeii and stuff like that. His mom had a Super 8 Sydney camera wow. um, hidden away. And literally, like, I think we'd seen Raiders. We watched the making of Raiders on TV, which was like another insight. And I think the two things combined was like, ah, now I get it. Um, we literally got hold of that camera and started making films, trying to learn the process from the ground up. We were reading, reading about it. We were, you know, read a lot of magazines and books and adventures in the screen trade and Starburst and Starlog and fantastic films and all that kind of stuff. Just really like sponges just soaking up all the information we could get, waiting for any making of documentaries that were on the TV and watching films like nonstop and then making these, you know, dodgy little Super 8 movies in our backyard or down the local woods and things like that and running around with... with uh, fake guns and and trying to do action movies and stuff and, and just and it was an incredible learning process of you know you you conceive of an idea you go out you shoot it you edit it you put it on the projector with the, for the get the family round you put it on the projector sign sync up some music with it and, you know, right. and it was all silent it was all silent of course so like trying to sync a cassette up to go with the, with the film. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like me on my Spectrum when I was a kid playing Outrun and having the cassette playing the music for the game while it loads up on the Spectrum and it's yep. like playing the game. It sounds just it like... It really was kind of back to basics. I mean, our, our, our you know, visual effects for us then were, I, I, I made miniatures. Yeah. I made a lot of mini- miniatures and things like that, but like visual effects involved getting a, 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 a magnifying glass and a needle and like literally scratching... Um, like gunshots on the end of the barrel of the gun, like using a nice. trying scratching directly onto the film or animating like a, a lightning coming out of somebody's fingers on it, animating on directly onto the film by scratching holes in it, which was like, you know, sacrilege, but it was the only way, <laughs> the only way to, to get it done. And anyway, it kind of worked. So with your parents, were they kind of supportive? And like, sometimes if you turn around to your parents and say, I want to be a, a guitarist in a band or I want to be a filmmaker, most of them are like, look, it's, you need to get a proper job. But were they fully supportive and backing you all the way? They were. They were incredibly supportive. Um, you know, I, th- I think better I, was, better I was out making movies than, you know, doing drugs or something like that. So yeah. I, think, I think they were, they were probably thinking, all things considered, this is pretty good. I don't know if they knew then that it was going to be my life, you know, that, that, but it started to quickly head that way. And I think in, in my, maybe in my late teens or something like that, I'm sure my dad probably once, once or twice might have said, you know, when are you going to get a proper job? <laughs> um, but then when it, you know, when it became a proper job and it was like, Oh, okay. So this is, this is your career now. And then, you know, they love what I do. I, you know, I love showing them the movies that I make and things like that. So my dad was instrumental in getting me into horror movies and westerns. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of want to show them what I've done and hope that they like them as much as the films that they showed me, you know? So it was in the early 90s you started making your shorts, stuff like Brain Death and 99 Combat and stuff. Was that the point when you realized that you could start making a career out of it? Is that when you kind of thought, well, I've got the right equipment, I can make these short films and hopefully show people my potential? Well, making short films sadly was no way to make a living. I, I, I had to pay the rent, and I did that yeah. uh, by editing. Yeah. Uh, so when I when I finished film school, I became an editor. For, I was working as a freelance editor for eight nine years, 
and then finally started to get to a place where you know I was making a living doing that and writing in my spare time and making whatever because uh, I was up in Newcastle and it wasn't like a huge industry there but there was like a local TV industry and there was a local arts funding board and so whenever there was a chance to to direct a short or something for TV or get some money from the local uh, combat was funded by a local, local arts funding uh, and that was kind of a chance to prove myself that I could do a feature when it came along so I did that in 99 while we were trying to get dog soldiers made and then eventually it helped because I used a lot of you know some of the cast I used uh same cast some a lot of the same crew went on to dog soldiers so it was just useful to have that I noticed there's quite a gap. So obviously you're making those films at the end of the 90s um, and then you had a few years until Dog Soldiers actually happened in 2002. So considering that's your first proper debut, you must have been absolutely blown away that the critics and the reviews for Dog Soldiers was, well, I, I think now it's an absolute cult classic and it's not easy to establish and get that status. But I've never met anyone that doesn't love horror, that doesn't love Dog Soldiers. It's in everyone's collection. You must be absolutely blown away. I am. I'm so proud. I am so chuffed that it's, it's had this life. You know, I'm 18 years later and we're still talking about it and it's getting, you know, renewed life on this new beautiful 4K Blu-ray. Yeah. It's, 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 it's astonishing. It really is. I mean, and back then it was pretty astonishing that I made this little overly ambitious, you know, um, movie that the British film industry had turned their noses of that, you know, when we tried to get it financed in the UK and Finally, you know, Pathé picked it up and gave it this incredible release, which at the time, you know, it got like a 300-screen theatrical release in the UK and a great marketing campaign and things like that behind it. Was just, you know, overwhelming the response that it got, and and I think it just it hit a nerve. You know, I did I I very selfishly made the film pretty much for myself. Yeah, it's like, this is just a film that I want to watch. It's like it felt like it was the perfect movie to watch when you get back from the pub on a Friday night. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> get, get your mates over and watch Dog Soldiers. And that was that was exactly what I had in mind. And I didn't try and make a movie that was going to be for everybody. I didn't try and make a movie that would necessarily work in the States. No. Um, at that time, I really had no concept of like the audience over here. So I just thought, oh, I've got to make it for, for a British audience and make a British film. And, and maybe it is that, that kind of honesty about itself that was like allowed it to people to see, just see that and appreciate it rather than something that tries to please everybody and kind of ends up pleasing nobody. And it's really awesome, like you just said then, that we're here now and we're getting Vertigo, releasing it on a proper 4K release. It's getting loads of extras. The artwork is gorgeous. It's got the nice slipcase and it deserves that treatment. I've I've got so many good horror classics on, you know, Scream Factory and Arrow. And it's so nice that finally I'll be able to have Dog Soldiers in the 4K crisp, brilliant edition that it deserves. It's It's about time, you know? Yeah, it's taken a while, I mean, but, and it's been quite a, a saga to get here as well. Because like uh, it was, you know, five or six years ago, whenever it was, that Shout Factory approached me and said that they wanted to do a Blu-ray, and we went on this quest to try and find the original negative of Dog Soldiers, and we couldn't find it. Couldn't no. find it anyway. It was lost. And uh, we went to the labs, we went to the distributors, we went to the producers, and nobody had it or knew where it was. And you know, that kind of opened my eyes to kind of the perils of independent filmmaking for you know when you're not with a studio and there's no archive facility for these things it's like i'm sure there's many movies have like lost their necks and will like never be never be found again um but thankfully like so well what happened with that one was we we did manage to locate a sort of pristine 35 mil print of the film and they made the blu-ray from that but since then the producer chris fig 
I don't know how he did it, but somehow he located the neg. And he went about organizing for the whole 4K restoration, yeah. pristine, beautiful thing. So, um, so that that done, and then it was it wasn't made specifically for uh, Vertigo. It was originally released in Germany. Um, some distribution company picked it up there, and I have that, but I I can't watch it because I don't have a 4K TV. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to have to get a 4K TV just to watch Dog Soldiers. It's worth it. I haven't got one yet. I've got the player. I've even started buying stuff like Jaws and all my favourites. I'm just waiting for the right time. I keep saying I don't need 4K. Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a selection of 4Ks now and I just can't watch them yet. So <laughs> It's all going to be worth it eventually. It will. So then this film's out. You've obviously then left your mark. Everyone's now really loving you and wanting to see where you go next. And I'm not just saying this because you're here. Anyone that knows me who's listened to 100 episodes of this knows how much I love The Descent. It's in my top five films of all time. It's oh, wow. absolutely incredible. I think from start to finish, considering the budget, I'm quite claustrophobic as well. So to watch this film is my biggest fear. But this film, you must have never have expected to take off like this and have that response, which is just, it is a cult classic. People now absolutely go crazy. I see screenings that they held in Bristol for like, you can go in. They did it in a cave. Yeah, you can do it in a cave. There's been, there's, yeah, there's been quite a few screenings. There's a, there was a place in the Lake District did it in a cave. Somewhere in Bristol did it. There's a couple of places in the States have had screenings in caves. I've not been to one of these cave screenings. No. I think it would be kind of, too much. kind of fun, actually. Yeah. Uh, probably like that. Um, <laughs> I think, I don't know, it, it certainly took me by surprise again. It was like, I kind of think with all with the success of Dog Soldiers, I'd probably peaked early and it was all going to be downhill from there. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of remarkable the response that the descent got. I mean, and the descent was was not necessarily like a straightforward journey. It's like after Dog Soldiers, uh, obviously, like it became easier, considerably easier. But I went to, I was introduced to a company called Salador Films, um, and they said, you know, what what have you got? What would you like to do next? And I pitched them this um, zombie movie that I'd written. It was actually my graduation film, Brain Death. Was, right. I, I turned it into a feature. It was kind of big explosions and zombies and warfare and all kinds of craziness. Um, and they said, we love it, but there's no way we can possibly afford it. Um, and also at that, at that time, like zombies weren't necessarily you know, the big comeback thing that yeah. they are now. Walking Dead wasn't um, on. Yeah, Walking Dead wasn't on. You know, um, it hadn't quite struck the nerve just yet. Um, so I went away from that meeting a little bit despondent, but they said, look, you know, come back with something else cheaper and this was a, a meeting that took place in london i was still living in newcastle at the time and i got on the train king's cross and by the time i would got off at newcastle central station i'd come up with the idea for the descent and literally like jotted it down sent it back to them the next day and they were like we'd love to do this let's do this instead um and so you know the descent was born then and then it was just i spent the next year writing it and uh and and finally you know got to make it I mean, I've had Shauna on the podcast and still now, everywhere she goes, everyone, even though she's been in Star Wars and this and that, everyone goes to it all the time. Every Comic-Con and just talks about the descent to it. It's still the film, well, you know. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody was absolutely phenomenal in that. And, and, and she, she stole the movie. I mean, she's just, yeah. <laughs> I put them all through hell, but it yeah. shows, you know, and it carried in their performances. I think what stands out for me so well, and even though I'm watching it now sort of, I don't know, when was it? 2005, so 15 years ago. It's the fact that you've used the practical effects and the creatures aren't CGI and it doesn't look dated. And 
I know it's ridiculous, but I won't go in a cave now. Um, and I wouldn't go in the sea after watching Jaws anywhere near um, Saint, you know, uh, in America. But it, it's, it terrifies me because it could be so real. It's not like, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm sitting there going, fucking hell, that's like a really evil, slimy golem down in a cave. I wanted to create something that there was a kind of a plausibility to it yeah. of that there are many caves in the world that are unexplored and this notion of essentially the, the cavemen who didn't leave the cave that, you know, when, when we, when we became cavemen all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, whenever it was, um, uh, most of us evolved, left the cave, built houses, you know, lived in huts, that kind of thing. But that these certain group did not leave the cave; they stayed in the dark. And then, how did they evolve in that circumstance? And so, I wanted to kind of give it some weirdly scientific, kind of plausible scenario behind it. Yeah. Um, but but it was always the case, and I'd learned this from doing dog soldiers. Was I was going to do them practically, and and the more practical, the better. And so, like it, it actually became there was very it was very minimal. I was I was looking for people. And I, I remember this at the time that my model for what the crawlers should look like would be like a bald Iggy pop. Um, <laughs> that, that, that physique that he had, that, that, the, uh, the, you know, it's, it's all muscle, yeah. but he's skinny, but with muscle. I was like, I want people who look like that. And then we'll, you know, we'll do them with prosthetics, but that's kind of it. They would, the rest of it was just body paint and tons of slime. Um, to, to make them look that way. But it was obviously, it was, it was, an old, it was just this bunch of like Northern lads that I knew from a theater company with uh, Craig Conway and, and uh, Les Simpson and people like that who were wearing dog soldiers and we used them and they were phenomenal. I love it from start to finish. And um, I'm going to ask you, what were your thoughts on the sequel? Um, uh, what was the sequel? Well, my, my first, when, when they said they were going to make a sequel, my first thought was, why? It doesn't need a sequel. There's nowhere for the story to go. Um, but they kind of pushed ahead anyway. And I could tell right away that their whole kind of attitude was just get them in the cave and the audience will be happy with whatever we, we do. And I was like, that's not really the case. No. It's got to, it has to be about characters. It has to be about who's going in the cave and why they're going in the cave. Yeah. Um, and and when they when they finally went, fell back on the on the she lost her memory and went back in the cave and couldn't remember anything I was like oh dear, um, and so unfortunately and and it was like everything because I, I when I was writing the descent, um, part of the thing that I was thinking of was obviously as the director as well I was thinking about how we were going to shoot it, and I always planned this notion of like the only light that, that should be in the caves is what the characters take with them there should be nothing yeah. else because that's what it's like in a real cave. There's no beautiful beams of light coming out of nowhere. Nothing like that. It's like I don't want to do any of that. I want it pitch black. And literally, like for a lot of the film, it's like I want shots where it's just like it's just them and a little match in the corner of the frame, and the rest pitch black. And I want it to be that oppressive and that claustrophobic. And so I had to, when I was writing the script, I had to track each character and what particular light source they had with them, and try and make that work. And and I. And I you know, had certain characters had snap lights so that they were associated with like a green light. And Shauna had fire, so she was associated with an orange light. And somebody had a flare, so they were that one thing. And okay. somebody had a, a, a video camera. And I had to track how, who had what light and when they dropped that light and somebody else picked it up, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was, that's what, part of what made the script quite complex to write. 
none of that went into the sequel. No. Uh, nobody put any thought to that into the, the sequel script. And so you end up with caves that are gratuitously lit. They're just, they're just, because because they hadn't considered that, how we're going to see the characters in this scene, um, that, that they ended up with the shafts of light or the, you know, and, and so it's a, it's a very different looking film. I think once they get into the caves, there's, there's light all over the place. And I think that, that kind of, to my mind, that kind of shows the care, care and attention or lack thereof that went yeah. into it. It didn't honor the first film. And, and, and even like the opening, it's like, well, where is it picking up from? Is it picking up from my ending, which is stuck in the cave, or is it picking up from the American ending, which is yeah. getting out but going crazy? It kind of picks up from neither of them, so it makes no sense anyway. No. So it's a bit of a disappointment for sure. If there's ever a film that I don't think ever needed a sequel, it was The Descent. I was happy with the US and the UK ending. I prefer the UK ending, but I'm still happy with both. And it felt like a standalone movie. That's all you ever needed. But, you know, these things do happen and sometimes it's out of your control. So you just think, oh, well. It, but, yeah, that, well, that's ultimately it. It's like I, got, I own the rights to it. So yeah, there's not so much I can do about it. But, um, and, and also like with regards to the US ending, I think the US ending is, is the bleaker ending. Yeah. I think I think it's uh, although the whole principle of changing the ending for the US was that they thought it made a happier ending. I think that's the bleaker ending because like she's left with nothing. Whereas yeah. at least in the British ending, she's kind of she may be insane and she's going to die, but she's, at least she's kind of with her daughter and that makes her happy. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. And then obviously you went and did a lot of TV work. Now, if you look at your actual CV, you've done Game of Thrones, Hannibal, which is easily my favourite TV in the last ten years. And then you've obviously recently done Westworld. Now, those three shows, throw in Breaking Bad and you've ticked every single box. But to get to work on <laughs> Game of Thrones, what was it like under that pressure and that scale and budget? Because the production size of that must be bigger than any film you'd worked on at that point. And it must have been like, oh, my God, like this Game of Thrones, you know? Well, I had, I'd had some experience because Doomsday was a pretty big movie. Yeah. Um, so I'd had a lot of fun with all the you know, bells and whistles and the big, big boys toys on that one. Um, but uh, yeah, Game of Thrones was like, as, as certainly bigger than Centurion, bigger than Descent, or bigger yeah. than Dog Souls and Descent combined. And I was kind of thrown right into the mix with it. Um, it was my first TV job. Uh, that I was brought in when their original director um, had had to leave for, for personal reasons. And I was given a week to prep it. To wow. Prep the, the biggest episode they'd done. Um, and I think, I, I don't know, I loved it. I, I, I loved that pressure. I loved that being right up against it. So it was just, it was great. I had a great experience. And it was an incredible like, team, creative team that they had over there to do it as well. But, um, and, it, and it all came from Centurion because um, the stunt team and the horse team went from Centurion onto Game of Thrones. And when they, lo- when they lost the director for this episode, it was, I think it was the stunt coordinator, Paul Herbert, who approached the producers and just said, look, give Neil a call. Look, look, look at what he did on Centurion when he had like three days to shoot a huge battle. Um, this is what he can do. Give him a call. He'll sort you out. And, uh, and they did. And I got the, and I, that was my um, baptism of fire in television. And then, you know, luckily, because it was Game of Thrones, then I got black sails. And, and, and working in, that, in the TV space was great fun because it meant I got to do a lot of things that I would never get to do in movies. Um, I got to, you know, or maybe, maybe never, but certainly unlikely. Like I got to do a pirate show. I got to do yeah. be on a pirate ship um, with Black Sails. I got to do a Western with Westworld. Um, I got to do Hannibal, you know. Um, so 
and and to do like and to go from like three maybe do two or three TV shows in a year, jumping from sci-fi to to thriller to drama or whatever, it was like amazing fun. It was, it was a, it's a different world, but thankfully I was kind of at the the kind of cutting edge of the TV revolution with these big shows, and uh, and I you know I, I still want to keep on working in that space. It's just it's just way too interesting not to. And working on something like Hannibal, what was it like getting to direct Mads Mikkelsen? Because I think he's one of the best actors on the planet. And working with Brian Fuller's work, you must have been in your element thinking, this is the best day ever. Uh, it, was, it was a real joy. Mads, Mads was, was, he was a hoot. He's hilarious. He's so funny. Um, you know, he turns it on for the camera, but afterwards he's like, he's, he's very kind of tongue-in-cheek and just a really good laugh to be with. Um, and uh, with Brian was... And he he's not Brian doesn't come on set all the time. Um, he has other people on set with you, but like he's busy. He's all about the script. But what he did say was like when we had our meetings beforehand, he said look, basically Hannibal is just like a um, it's a closet art house movie. It's like it's an art house movie in disguise. So I want you to come up with as many like wacky art house bizarre ideas, run them by me, and I'll see if they fit in the world. And it kind of that episode in particular, whatever, I kind of unleashed my inner artist a little bit and just yeah. came up with some bizarre imagery. And, and they were like, yeah, we love it. Let's just put <laughs> it in there. Um, you know, the shot of, shot of Will standing over the bed with the, uh, the dragon wings behind yeah. him made out, made out of the red strings that, you know, the blood spatter strings, whatever it was like, I, I came up with that idea and they were like, let's do it. Red dragon with the film wrapped around his yeah. head and the proje- yeah. projector coming out of his eyes and projecting his inner thoughts onto the wall and stuff like that. Again, that was just like crazy ideas I came up with and they were like, yeah, let's give them a go. It's so fun getting that chance to do that. To have that much input and be allowed to just create and throw in these ideas and it not just be like, sorry, that's not right and actually get to see them then be produced. It must be incredible. It must be unbelievable. You must have been like, oh God, where can I take it next? Like, you know, how can it I... Was. It was. It was like, just how, how crazy can I go with this? Um, and they were, they were all for it. So I, I don't know if there was anything I came up with. They were like, ooh, I don't know about that. Actually, no, the craziest idea I came up with was I wanted to do a fast track into something. Oh, nice. And, they, and, and literally like the DP told me, he said, we don't do that on this show. We have, <laughs> we have, nothing moves fast on this show. It's like we do Hannibal Speed. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> I, I really do hope we get season four and you're involved i really do hope if anything happens in the world in 2020 we need to end with the announcement that netflix gives us season four yeah i mean i, I, I it would be great and then you know another thing and and you know all, all power to brian as well is like i bumped into i think it was i guess it was from game of thrones but i bumped into it at the Emmy's party for the hbo party i never met i never met him before and he was like you must come and do an episode of Hannibal and you kind of assume like uh, you, you have these encounters where you meet people and they're like, Oh yeah, come and do our show or whatever. And you never hear from them again. No. And what's that, but not Brian, like literally I had an offer on the table the next day. Was wow. Like, come and do Hannibal. Like, and I was like, wow. Okay. This guy means what he says. <laughs> and then to get to work on uh, Westworld, did you um, kind of get to then show that to your dad who had brought you up on Westerns and then go to say, look, I've kind of made one for TV. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was you know amazing getting to do like a combination of science fiction and you know uh, yeah. and, and a western and the same thing, and the opportunity to work with like Ed Harris and Anthony Hopkins. I got to direct Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, like, just crazy. amazing stuff. 
So yeah, that was that was a real pleasure. That was the, that's the only job I've actually done when I filmed in LA. You know, it was just a twenty minute drive away. And was it so, quite kind of? Um, did it feel quite pressured to kind of then direct Hannibal Lecter? You know, for me, Anthony Hopkins is one of the world's greatest actors. You must have been like, wow, this is. Oh a, yeah. You know, it was it was a little bit daunting, um, yeah. for sure. And when he came on set, it was like, you know, everybody says, just call him Tony. That's what he do. He never wants to hear anything else. Just call him Tony. I was like, okay, great. So I went and introduced himself, uh, introduced myself to him and, uh, and said, uh, you know, real, real pleasure to meet you. And he just looked at me and he went, you're a Geordie. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Geordie. And, and bam, he was just so friendly. And we just, uh, every, every opportunity I could get uh, between takes, I was just sitting on the set with him just, listening to him tell stories and uh, i think my my highlight was he told me a story about when he met richard burton oh lovely at the corner shop in his town where he was growing up and then anthony hopkins proceeded to do an amazing richard burton impersonation um so so that was like you know treasured memories from working with hopkins absolutely that's incredible. And now that we're sitting here, obviously it's this lockdown and everything's stopped and all the films have been delayed and cinemas are closing, but you are obviously getting the release of The Reckoning out there. Uh, we're going to get to see it hopefully at Fright Fest and hopefully I'm sure we'll get some sort of cinema release or video on demand, however it's going to work out. But I actually saw the poster today and I'm getting really excited that you're returning back to your roots of horror and it's not the huge scale of something like Hellboy. And I'm really excited. How is it looking for you at the moment? Well, I mean, obviously the world's gone to shit and, and, and <laughs> yeah. it's been heavily affected by everything. I mean, we've, we've had, uh, you know, a tremendous response to it so far uh, with just distributors and festivals and such like, obviously the pain in the ass is, you know, I was, one of the reasons I wanted to go back to horror was the opportunity to go back and do the festival circuit and meet the fans and, and, you know, meet other horror filmmakers again and do that. Cause I, I love doing that with dog soldiers and descent. It was just yeah. such a joy. And I wanted to do that again. It's all just been completely fucked, hasn't it? Okay. Um, yeah. Online festivals and things are fine, but they're not festivals. They're not, no. you can't, you know, it's not the same thing. It's that mingling. It's that interaction of, and seeing other movies that you've never heard of before for the first time, you know, just the, the, I love that festival world. And so I wanted to get back into that with The Reckoning. Um, and that's sadly been taken away. And a fit of irony, of course, The Reckoning being about, or not being about, but being set during the Great Plague. Yeah. Um, you know, we couldn't have seen that one coming. But the, yeah, the, the, after, the, after the, my, I had a really miserable experience on Hellboy. Um, and having like zero creative input in the film, um, I wanted to go the opposite direction. And so was um, The Reckoning. It was an opportunity to get back to my roots, do something horror, have full creative control, even if that meant having next to no money to do it. But then just creatively solving problems rather than having the ability to throw money at problems. Um, that I think that really kind of rejuvenated me as a filmmaker. I think it was, yeah. it was a great thing to do. Um, it felt like making those first movies again. Um, and you know, I hope that that shows in the work, you know. Well, I don't really want to focus too much on it, but with Hellboy, when I went to see it, and I'm just being completely honest with you now, I just didn't enjoy it. Um, I'm just being completely honest. Um, I don't blame you. It, it just didn't work for me, and I was sitting there thinking, this doesn't feel like your film. Um, even with the scale and the budget, I don't expect it to be like The Descent when it's Hellboy and this comic character and this huge actor and all this budget, but 
I was just sat there and it just didn't work. There were so many things in there that I couldn't grab onto and it was just missing everything. And I was thinking, this doesn't feel like your film. This doesn't feel like you at all. And I was thinking... It's, it's not at all. It's not no. at all. I mean, there's, there's, like, there's nothing of me in it. No. Um, and although I, you know, I'm kind of annoyed that people would assume that all the kind of terrible CG gore is like my contribution and it's it's not at all no. um i was brought on board to do a horror version of hellboy and i wasn't allowed to do that i wasn't permitted no. to do you know i wasn't allowed to do the script um and wasn't permitted to do that so i was like i was trying to do it with my hands tied behind my back there was like nothing of me in it no. so that's why i don't consider it to be my film i've not actually seen the finished film i really have no interest no. um Whereas something like The Reckoning was a chance to get back and, and I feel like it's my, it's my first real movie since Centurion. And so. that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, what's he going to do next? Is he going to do something big again for Hollywood where he's got no kind of control and it's going to be another one? Or is he just going to think, fuck you and do what he wants to do? And I'm glad you've gone for the latter. Yeah, and I think that's, that's kind of the direction that I'd rather go in unless yeah. somebody comes to me and says, you can have all the money in the world and you can have control, which is highly unlikely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, I'd rather be doing lower budget movies that, that, that are more of a creative, more, there's more creative fun to them and the people involved are just more fun. It's just like, you know, cause it, when you're devoting and when you commit to a movie, you're, de- you're devoting a minimum of year, a year of your life to it, if not two. So it's got to be worth your while. And, you know, I, I learned a lot from the mistakes I made with, by, yeah. <laughs> by agreeing to do Hellboy. Um, and if, if, you know, I think I've, I've, moved on and, and taken that learning into a, you know, a positive direction, I think. And that's good. It's really good that you've made that a positive and changed those things and, you know, to avoid it, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't be announced suddenly for Hellboy 2 next month. You know, there won't be this big attack. No. <laughs> Does it kind of put you off wanting to work with the big studios again and just stick to the stuff that you enjoy most and have your heart invested in? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I wouldn't, I, you know, obviously, like if somebody came to me and said, Will you do James Bond? I'd say, Yes, yeah. please. Don't do Star um, there's, there's, Yeah. No, there's, there's, there's some boxes I would love to tick. I would love to do a Bond movie. I'd love to do a Star Wars movie. I don't know if that's ever likely to happen, but, um, but that's just stuff that's like precious to me personally, anyway. Um, whereas I don't know, I, I'm happy to do these like wonderful, fun genre, yeah. action, horror, whatever. You know, there's, there's a lot of, I think, I think. I'm lucky enough to do what I love doing, you know. Um, so I'd rather keep it that way than just turn it into a, you know, daily um, fight and make yeah. it miserable. I mean, I could see you doing something like an episode of The Mandalorian, like something like that, when you see a mix of different directors. I could imagine you doing getting invited. This gets announced next week, then let's quote this podcast. But um, season three, imagine getting involved in an episode. That would be, I'm sure, like playing with all the toys and having the best fun out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's another great series. And I think, you know, with, with TV shows as well, it's like what I learned very quickly and what made it actually a lot of fun to do is that you, you, you park your ego at the door. Yeah. You're not there. You're not there to do to, you know, it's, it, it's not your baby. It's somebody else's baby and you're not there to do your own thing. You do that to help, you know, to direct somebody else's thing. And once you embrace that and accept that it's actually like it's a real pleasure to just go in and just like direct the shit out of something yeah and you can go home and you can sleep at night or whatever it's like you, you don't carry the burden in the same way you do when it's your movie um but 
you are doing the best job possible and there's a lot of fun and especially if it's a, a great team like Game of Thrones or whatever was an amazing team it's just yeah. it's, a, it's a joy to do that kind of stuff so I'd love to go and do Mandalorian absolutely and with the future at the moment, according to IMDb, you've got Nightrise and Eagle's Nest coming out. Uh, is that stuff that's still going to happen, or is it COVID fucking? Well, up? yeah, don't uh, don't believe everything you read on IMDb. Unfortunately, like your know, projects go up there, and it's very difficult to get them taken down again. Nightrise was a project; it was a great script, but uh, yeah. didn't get picked up. So, nothing's happening with Nightrise. Eagle's Nest, absolutely, that is an ongoing you know, dream project. That's my. Indiana Jones stroke where he goes there stroke die hard movie. Oh my God. Um, Take my money now. <laughs> uh, yeah. I wish, I wish, I wish other people felt that way. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of thing that I think nowadays probably would like find a home on Netflix or, or Amazon or something like that. Yeah. Um, cause it needs a bit, it needs a little bit of a budget to it. That's the thing. Um, but it's, it's a cracking movie. I'm still, I'm still trying to get that made. Um, I don't know what else is on IMDb, but, um, some of the things are for real, some of them are not. I think Dog Soldiers 2 is still on IMDb. Wow. Um, and, and has been for the past, like, 15 years. Um, but that one's, that one, or at least that version of it is not going anywhere soon. No, well, you have to wait. Hollywood will come into that, and they'll completely do it again, and they won't let you have any say on it. <laughs> they'll just completely change everything. Well, I, I always joke that, like, one day it would get kind of remade with, like, Bruce Willis and the Sean... Sean Pertwee role or something like that and it's like it's yeah I wouldn't necessarily put it past them <laughs> yeah I, nothing ever should be put past them the way it goes at the moment and something that I ask all directors all film producers actors singers any guest that comes on the podcast I have a lot of young um, listeners that are at uni or film school that want to be the next big thing that want to get out there and get their work shown now in a world right now, forgetting the lockdown and COVID and everything else, but with the tools that are in place where you can shoot a film on an iPhone, you can get it on YouTube, you can put it on social media. Look at Host recently, the horror. It's made mm -hmm. no budget and it became the biggest horror in this year, I think. What advice do you give to people that want to be the next Neil Marshall to make something like The Descent, to be there and kind of get their work noticed right now? Um, well, I would say that, look, if, if your objective is to be the next big thing, then you're, you're in the wrong business. Just stop. That's yeah. like, that's not the right motivation. Um, you know, the motivation is should purely should just be to make the best work possible and then see what happens. And it's like, for the, you know, it's for everyone else to decide whether you're the next big thing or not. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's really not the, 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 the right motivation at all. But since there's no limits in terms of like what you can do in your own home now, yeah. Um, as you say, shoot, edit, visual effects, whatever. Then the only limit is imagination. The only limit is creativity. Um, so it's kind of just up to to you to come up with the ideas now, which is is the hardest part always to come up with those ideas uh, that that work. Um, but there's kind of there's no excuse wise, like technology wise. But that doesn't make it easy. I don't know if that's good advice. I've no, no idea. Advice. <laughs> I think give up if you want to be the next big thing is an amazing piece of advice right there. And I mean, with with me, it was just stubborn determination. Of like, yeah, you know, just this is what I had to do. And though I don't, I didn't really. Un there was never a, a day when I went and thought that Dog Soldiers over this over the six years that it took to get made, I never thought it was wasn't going to get made. I, yeah. I knew it was like somehow or other it's going to get made. I just didn't know when. And if, if you told me, like, at the beginning it was going to take six years, um, that wouldn't have stopped me. It would be like, okay, I'll just do it sooner. Yeah. yeah. And you've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, there'd be a dream to work on this and a dream to work on that. But 
when you look at your last sort of 20 years in the business and what you've achieved and these incredible cult classics and these horrors that will stay with you forever, what's left that you really want to achieve that would be kind of the, the moment for you to think, I've now done everything I've set out to do? And I know we've talked about The Mandalorian and getting to do a Star Wars and this, but is there some sort of boxes that you're eager to tick that you still want to kind of get done on your whole life and career? Definitely. Um... And you know, whether it's be specific things like, you know, I'd love to do a Bond movie or, uh, you know, I'd love to create my own TV series um, and, or uh, create my own franchise or something like that as a, you know, a creative aspect of to, to where it's going. Um, I, I think as a filmmaker, I'd like to stretch my legs a bit and, you know, do some more diverse stuff of, of being seen uh, to be you know, able to handle drama or, or maybe, uh, maybe comedy. I don't know. I can't see me doing any romantic comedies anytime. No. I don't really have any inkling to do that. But you know, maybe some good drama or something like that would be would be nice just to to um, kind of expand my abilities as a director. I think um, um, I've never, you know, other than directing Anthony Hopkins, I've never really worked with stars like big stars, and I suppose I'd like to experience that at some point. Someone like Tom um, Cruise or Ryan Gosling or someone of that status. Yeah, I'd love to work with Cruise. Um, yeah. You know, um, I think, you know, Cruise is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, or, or Keanu Reeves or Harrison Ford or something like that. Yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd love to experience that sometime for sure. And my, my, my final question, and this is putting you on the spot, but I ask it to everyone. So any person that's been on the podcast has been asked this. Uh, what I like to do is close the podcast with a piece of music. Now, every episode is different, and we've done over 100 episodes. We've had Anthony Hopkins, Kevin Smith, Mads Mikkelsen, and everyone has chose a different piece of music to close out the episode. Now, if I gave you time to think about it, you'd be lying in bed and suddenly at 4 o'clock in the morning shout out thinking, oh, I should have asked for this, I should have asked for this song, I should have asked for that. On the spot, what is a song by a band that means a lot to you that would be the perfect closing music to today's interview? Uh, Into the Light by Susie and the Banshees. Amazing. I like that you didn't have too long to think about it. Some people are like, oh, I've got it down to three and I don't know which one, so you do the well, I know, you, you, gave, you gave me, out while you were t- asking me the question, I was like, oh, God, oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, was, it was either going to be that or Burn by The Cure. Oh, the cure's a hell of a choice, but we'll go with your original one because I think that's straight from the heart, which is important. Well, the reason that I thought about that one was it was originally going to be the end title music on the descent. Oh, but we nice. couldn't but we couldn't get the rights to it, so um we, we used the orchestral store instead, but it's like it's always been in the back of my mind that that was the end title music for the descent. Well that's perfect for today then. All right. <laughs> Uh, a massive thank you, Neil, for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. I've absolutely loved speaking to you, and I can't wait to see The Reckoning. I can't wait to see what happens with Eagle's Nest, and hopefully in a year's time we'll be sitting here talking about the Mandalorian episode that you directed because of this podcast. Well, that'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> nah, it's been a pleasure. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the absolutely awesome Neil Marshall. It was so good to get to talk about some of my favourite films. I can't wait to see his brand new film, The Reckoning. And we even touched base on that sore subject of Hellboy. But I wasn't afraid to ask the question and it was so good to see how honest he was and how willing he was to talk about, you know, not the best moments of his career. But my God, the best bits of his career are unbelievable. Dog Soldiers, in my opinion, is absolutely untouchable and so is The Descent. If this is the first time you're listening to Mark and me and you're hearing about these films... 
go and check them out as soon as possible. Don't just get on a streaming service, go and buy them. Honestly, they're that good. Some of the best films out there and easily in my top 10 British horrors of all time. Absolutely awesome. I want to thank Neil for coming on the podcast. As I said at the start of today's episode, it's been a long time coming, but it's been worth the wait and an absolute pleasure. And I can't believe I can now say that Neil Marshall's been on Mark and Me. It's a dream come true. Please, everyone out there who's listening right now, take a moment to share the episode. It only takes a second to retweet it or put it out on Facebook or share it on Instagram. It makes a huge difference. And only recently we've got on Amazon Music. We're now on Spotify. We're on iTunes. It's getting bigger and bigger. And the response from the artist episodes is bringing a whole new audience. And I'm seeing a lot more followers. So thank you for all tuning in and checking out Mark and Me. If you love the work I do, go on to markandme.com. And on there, there's links to the Facebook page, the Twitter, the Instagram, and all the social media stuff that you need. As well as that, there's my Patreon page, and you can go on there and support me as little as 70p a month. At the moment, you're getting around 7 or 8 episodes per month, loads of prizes, loads of opportunities to win some incredible art, some Blu-rays, Funkos, Last Exit to Nowhere t-shirts. Oh, the list goes on and on. But I want to thank everyone for tuning in today, and what I'll do, I'll be back in a week's time with a brand new episode. So until then, take care, and I'll speak to you all soon.
Thank you.